Galatians 1, 6 through 10, I trust that you're either there, can make your way there in short order. Much like the book of Hebrews, we're going to be very familiar with this book uh, when it's all said and done. So we have verses 6 through 10 that we will tackle today. This is really where the language starts to pick up in intensity (laughs) right out the gate. And uh, he continues to build and snowball from here, which we'll see. But what's on the line is uh, mission critical, is uber important. The gospel's at stake. Uh, So my prayer and trust is that the Lord would make us zealous to be uh, faithful, right? The church is the pillar and support of the truth, uh, the buttress of the truth, and we want to be just that. This book really emboldens us to do it as well as equip us. So if you'll bow your head and close your eyes, let's go ahead and ask the Lord for his guidance, direction, understanding, but also the capacity by his spirit to apply what we see here. Uh, so let's pray this morning. Father, we do turn to you. We want the disposition of our heart, uh, even in our prayer to express our, our need before you that we are at the mercy of your spirit, opening our eyes, moving us and overwhelming us with the truths that we see here, uh, compelling our hearts in ways which are according to your will, that we would be zealous, that we would be bold, that we would be very watchful and vigilant. And Lord, would you work this in us as we spend time in Galatians, even as we continue to venture through chapter one, we thank you for its directness, its clarity, And Lord, also give us understanding as to where this aligns in relevancy to to our day and time, for we know it does. Your word is timeless. And so there's um, an abundance of relevance for us to apply and be encouraged by even in our context. So give us grace to understand these things. We pray for your glory, for the protection of the church and its advancement of your gospel. Lord, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, one of the most, uh, like I mentioned, one of the really the most hard-hitting, decisive, grace-saturated, salvation-clarifying, gospel-advancing, Bible-defending books in all of the Bible is, guess what book? (laughs) It's the book of Galatians. Uh, It's the book that really blew up much of the false teaching that was prominent in the days of the apostles, apostles, but it's also, I think, it proved to be the decisive book that blew up the prison that both Pope and Council and traditions had built around the Bible for all those many centuries prior. Alongside Romans, the book of Galatians, I think, is the book that makes the clearest in all the Bible the doctrine of justification by grace alone through faith alone, on the basis of Christ alone, and to the glory of God alone. And so it's not surprising then that it was this book that really put steel into Martin Luther's backbone when he had to stand against emperor and church and world and devil. We know the song that he wrote, wrote right? Though this world with devil fill should threaten to undo us. We will not fear. Why? For God hath will his truth to triumph through us. And this was the steel that was in Martin Luther's backbone. Uh, For us, we have to ask, well, what was going on in the Reformation over 500 years ago? Well, there were two questions being asked, to put it simply. One is, how do I get into a right relationship with God? And secondly, what is the basis to your answer to question number one? How do I get into a right relationship with God? And what is the basis to your answer to question number one? We're all sinners. And we're not right with God, is what the Bible indicates. Romans 3, Romans 6, right? And the question of the Reformation, and indeed the gospel, is how do sinners get into a relationship with God that's peaceable, reconciled, forgiven, accepted, counted as righteous, so that God is 100% for you, never to be wrathful against you again? And the Reformation, the answer in the Reformation was justification by grace alone, through faith alone. Justification, that divine act by which, without a whiff of law-keeping, by faith we are united with Christ and in turn are counted because of Christ righteous and therefore forgiven, accepted, reconciled, restored in relationship to God. You'll remember, just by way of summary, really the main idea of Galatians, 
all six chapters bound up in one statement was this. That the God that you're here to worship this morning is the same God who has freed us from the curse of the law, right? And all God's people said amen to that. Romans 3.20, this law which is incapable of justifying sinners. God has freed us from the curse of the law through the perfect work of his son so that we might be free to live for him. And from that moment, when freedom is granted, our lives are forever changed, is it not? Holiness, godliness become precious to us. We want to bring our lives into conformity with the one who has created us and loved us and saved us and even set us free. But all of that subsequent transformation of which the end of Galatians will address, chapters 5 and chapter 6, all of that transformation has to be rooted and start at justification. And if you get this freedom-providing miracle backwards, right? If you say, I have to do some things, or I have to be holy, or I have to be a godly person to get into that right relationship with God, well, then you do not yet know the gospel. This was the issue at hand for Paul with the Galatians. How do I get into a right relationship with God? The second thing was, what's the basis for all of that? What's the basis to your answer to question one? Literally, what is the role of this book in our lives? Well, you know from Luther's life, right? He was excommunicated by the Roman Catholic Church, which, mind you, meant he could be executed by the emperor. And in, in, in that excommunication, he was brought before the Diet of Worms, right, where he had to give an account for his so-called heretical teachings and given an opportunity to recant, to retract what he had stated, what he had written. You'll recall what Luther stated, right? He gives really 13 clear answers, but the last one's the most famous one. He says this in effect, I cannot submit my faith either to Pope or council. If then I am not convinced by proof of Holy Scripture, basically saying, I can't retract anything. Here I am, I could do no other. And so he was standing against Pope and councils and traditions and saying, listen, I have to see it here in this book or I'm not going to retract anything. This is where my authority lies, both for Paul as well as Luther. The authority was in the Bible. And so Galatians 1, 6 through 10 was really the passage that put steel into Luther's backbone when it came to standing on this book as opposed to deferring to what at that time was the most powerful person in the world, which was the Pope himself. And so friends, a passage of this type of influence merits our reading it. Amen. So let's read chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. Paul writes, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Starts to get a little heavier, right, as we move our way forward. And this is just the beginning. The main idea over these few verses, verses 6 through 10, is the same as last week. Because let's keep it simple, right? Um, gospel clarity demands an urgent and straightforward response to gospel confusion. Gospel clarity demands an urgent, straightforward response to gospel confusion. And to say that there were major invasions of confusion as pertaining to the gospel... In Paul's day would be an understatement. You see, to put simply, many within the Galatian church were not abiding by Galatians 5.1. They were not standing firm in the gospel. They were too busy, as Paul said, being carried away 
and being carried away by the Judaizers who were saying that, listen, one is saved, yes, by saving faith, but also by saving compliance. But at the heart of the gospel is that we are completely incapable of ever sufficiently and completely complying to the law. Yes, there's only one who has, and there's really only one who can, and his name is Jesus Christ. And so last week, Paul quickly begins, I have to address this confusion. And he starts out by explaining, reinforcing his authority, which was being questioned at that time. Now we're going to see in this passage, Paul still has a few more urgent clarifying objectives in front of him. And there's three specifically. Clarifying objective number one is this. Paul expresses his anxiety, verses 6 through 7. Paul expresses his anxiety. And this angst is going to snowball into full-blown anger later on in the letter. He writes in verse 6, I am amazed, note that word, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. Now, friends, before we look at what Paul is saying here, it's, again, helpful to see what he's not saying. In his letter to various churches, Paul typically and would invariably give thanks to God for those that he's writing to, right? Even in his correspondence to the Corinthians, where the apostle had to battle the devaluation of the cross, he had to battle divisions and lawsuits, immorality, misuse of gifts, and a full-blown denial of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Even in that context, Paul could find it in his heart to write the following, 1 Corinthians 1.4, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus. He even could give thanks for them in that space, that correction that was needed, but that's simply not the case in his letter to the Galatians. Now, Paul launches immediately into a decisive confrontation with the Galatians over the, the nature of their threatened departure from the gospel. And so he doesn't say, I give thanks. He starts off by saying, I am amazed. And Am- amazed there is an incredibly strong word that Paul is, is literally conveying, he's absolutely beside himself. He, he, his head's, ha- hands are on top of his head. He, he's clutching his hair and he's proceeding to pull it out. That's the visual. I am amazed. He's astounded. He's bewildered. He cannot fathom why they were so quickly deserting him. That is God who had called them by means of the grace of Christ. I am amazed. And note, he's not amazed or surprised by what false teachers were doing. He expected false teachers to be present. He anticipated sheep, sheep in wolves' clothing, or wolves in sheep's clothing, rather. He anticipated this. But he was shocked that the Galatians were departing so easily, so quickly. They, they weren't even putting up a fight. They were opening up the door and telling everyone, these Judaizers, different gospel entirely, which we'll see in a moment is no gospel at all, and just telling them, come on in. And they would give them an open seat at the table. All of this, mind you, is connected to just a short time ago. These same people had the privilege of being taught by one of the greatest teachers the church has ever known apart from the Lord himself. And yet, nevertheless, they now readily rejected the truths of grace that they had learned from him. Northlake, for you and I, I I had to pause here for a moment and say, this is a warning, is it not? This is a warning to us all. I, I think for starters, the warning is that a church can appear to be be firm. A church can appear to be doing quite well and they can appear to be standing in the grace of Christ in the gospel. And you look up 12 months later and all is lost. Abandonment is underway. Luther once stated that one unlearned idiot can undo the work of a decade. That's true. One unlearned idiot can undo the work of a decade. 
And what was the work of this undoing in this case? What did it lead to? Paul said, desertion. You are so quickly deserting him who called you by his grace. You are deserting. That, that's a, that was a military term used for a crime that was punishable by death in a time of war. A person would abandon his, desert his compatriots. And interestingly enough, the word here in Greek is reflexive, which we say whoop-de-doo. What, what does that mean? What, what it means is that these, this act of desertion was voluntary. Voluntary. These believers were not being passively removed by these false teachers. They were voluntarily removing themselves. They were more than accountable for this desertion. Were the false teachers accountable for the corruption of the gospel? Most assuredly. But the Galatian Christians were also, also accountable for being so easily, easily misled. And in being misled, what are they simultaneously laying hold of as they are letting go of the true gospel? What were they picking up as they were putting down the gospel? Paul says they were picking up a different gospel, a different gospel entirely. Verse 7, yes, they believed in the deity of Christ. Yes, they believed that Christ died for sinners. They believed in the resurrection. They believed in heaven. There's no hint throughout this letter that any of that is ever in question. And so the truth of the matter is that these people, these individuals didn't set out to overtly deny the gospel, did they? No, their crime was in thinking that they could improve upon the gospel, that they could supplement it, they could add to it requirements that were outside of what God had spoken. They were trying to add the ceremonies and standards and traditions of the old covenant with that of the new. And so what Paul goes on to convey is that, listen, there's nothing to be improved upon. There's nothing to be added. There's no supplement needed. Romans eleven six. if you add law to grace, grace ceases to be grace. And so to that end, the apostle goes on to say, listen, a different gospel is no gospel. It's no gospel at all. Let's be clear about that. Look at verse 7, which is really not another. It's not a gospel. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. The Judaizers were promoting a completely contrary and ineffective means of being right with God. You remember the first question we're asking, right? How do I get into a right relationship with God? They, were repla they weren't replacing the water that was in the well, were they? They were simply coming alongside the church and adding one drop of poison to the water. And if you begin to say, well, that's not that big a deal or that's, that's rather insignificant, well, try drinking water that's been poisoned, <laughs> right? Even one drop can make water lethal. This is why the earnestness, this is why the urgent, straightforward response to this gospel confusion was needed. Any single false idea, just one, in any way that undercuts the God's grace poisons really literally the whole system of belief. That God saves sinners by his grace. That the gospel of grace is the gospel of divine redemption totally apart from any work or merit of man. You love, and are very familiar with Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, right? For by grace you have been, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's not of yourselves. It's not of your law keeping. It's not of your doing. Get rid of the legalism. Stop listening to the Judaizers. In their context, we're trying to tell them that they had to be circumcised. In order, in order to be reconciled. And so in this teaching, in this distortion, the Judaizers were, Paul says, disturbing the people of God in Galatia. Literally, disturbing means to shake back and forth violently, to agitate, to stir. They were literally shaking these believers to their very foundation by their false teaching 
that perverted or distorted the gospel by adding works to grace. And all of this was to the sad effect that the Galatians were literally deserting him. You want to talk about the strongest way to put it. You are deserting him who called them by his grace. That's a strong indictment. That's a terrifying indictment. And so no wonder Paul is beside himself, no? So much so that throughout the rest of the letter, he's going to go on to say time and time again the implications or the fallout of this distortion. Look later in chapter 3, verse 1. He, he, in his mind, these were fools that he's writing to. <laughs> you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Later, verse 3 of chapter 3, some of the believers who had began by the Spirit were now trying to be perfected by the flesh. Chapter 4, verse 9, even though that they had come to know God, or rather been known by God, they had what? Turned back to the weak and elemental things of this earth. Chapter 5, verse 7, although they had been known for running well, they were now being hindered from obeying the truth. This, this implication of this distortion just its machine gun fire throughout the book. Why? It's because Paul has to address this distortion. He cannot allow those within the church to be disturbed in this way. Now for us, in terms of how do we take this and in the midst of us studying it, how do we, Lord, we want to live what we learned. We want to take from this what, we, what you want for us. How do we take this warning upon ourselves is the question. I think number one, to put plainly, to desert the gospel is not simply to desert a doctrine. It's to desert the person of Christ himself. And once you wrap your minds around that, it being the pillar and support or buttress of the truth becomes a big deal to you. You are not just deserting a message. You are deserting the very God who has called you to himself. This is why this is such a serious offense. Later on in Galatians 5, verse 4 specifically, Paul's going to say that those who seek to sustain their justification or their right standing with God by any degree of law are those who have, and these are, this is strong language, these are people who have fallen from grace and have been severed from Christ. That's heavy. Now, this is not Paul saying that these individuals have lost their salvation, the, the salvation that they've already received, that there's no such thing as eternal security. Paul is simply stating that those who are attempting to be justified by the law are those who reject salvation by grace alone through faith alone. And their eventual desertion of Christ and the gospel, regardless of what seemed to be the case initially, only proves that their faith was never genuine or saving in the first place. And those who lack such genuine saving faith in the true gospel are those who will find themselves separated from the life of God that is found in him. It's impossible to forsake grace without forsaking the Lord. This is why Paul's also going to say this in other epistles in different ways, but really the same thing. He later tells Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.1, right? Keep standing strong in the grace of that is found in Christ Jesus. Keep standing firm. Why do you have to be told to keep standing? It's because there's the temptation, the likelihood, the danger of not standing firm as you ought, of being misled, the truth being distorted. I think secondly, in terms of the implication for us is that there's still a great need and there's always a great need for clear preaching and teaching that does what? continually repeats the central truths of the gospel. We never graduate. We never move on. We keep heralding the same message, right? Paul says, I did not come with you with eloquent speech, but with a simple message, Christ and him crucified. That's our message. Why is, the, why is there a need for this repetitive, consistent, faithful preaching and teaching? It's because much can be lost in a really short amount of time. 
Moses was on Mount Sinai for 40 days. And you know what happened in that span? Comes back down and literally Exodus 32, they had, they had built a golden calf. The spiritual life of Israel looked bright in Joshua's day, but it soon took a nosedive after his death. You just look at Judges 2, 7 and following. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And if you need to read the book, you can see what life looks like when everyone does what is right in their own eyes. It's not pretty. Joash looked good for a time, but eventually revealed that he was unregenerate, 2 Chronicles 23. You see, Paul knew this. He felt the weight of this. There's a big test for Christians that that comes to them when a sanctifying influence is no longer present, when it's absent. He traveled, first missionary journey, planted these churches in southern Galatia, and he left for another journey and to plant other churches. And in that span of his absence, a distortion had taken place, and it broke his heart. He's beside himself. He's amazed. This is why he praised the Philippians, is it not? You remember Philippians 2.12? He praises them that they were same, the same when Paul was with them as well as when he was absent. They were the same. They were faithful. They stayed true. I think this is important for us. We live in the United States. You know, the West has known the, the privileges of the gospel in the past, right? But that means nothing today, and it means nothing for the future. All of that can be lost. The truth can be forsaken. It can be distorted. People can be misled. Yet a Puritan, William Perkins, put it simply and graphically, all visible churches upon the earth are subject to apostasy. All churches. Take the most faithful church that you know, and even they need to heed the warning to be careful. Stay true to the gospel as revealed in Scripture. Church, make no mistake about it. Satan desires to lure the people of God into two things. Sin and error. That's it. Sin and error. And oftentimes error does does more damage than sin. J. Gresham mentioned in the 1930s wrote the following, and in these sad days when Christian language so often conceals a profoundly unchristian mind and heart, would to God that he, we had in all our churches less of empty pious words, less of a foolish optimism, and more of the fearless honesty of Paul. May we have less of empty pious words. We have a lot of empty pious words being uttered today. And not a whole lot of fearless honesty that you see exhibited in Paul's life. Takeaway for you and I is we can so easily lose the gospel if not careful. We graduate, we move on to other doctrines, we move on to other things. People join, people come to Christ. We keep heralding the gospel. We can easily lose the the simplicity and beauty and grandeur of this message. And that's not an indictment against the power of God, is it? It's an indictment against our own fickleness, our own forgetfulness. We as believers can start off our spiritual journey really strong and firm grip of the gospel and standing firm in the grace of Christ, only to then allow ourselves to be weakened and allow ourselves to be perverted by ideas espoused by men which lead us away from the pure and plain teachings of Scripture. Paul has to express his angst, his anxiety. I am amazed. The second clarifying objective, Paul has to expose his adversaries, which he does in verses 8 through 9 as well. He exposes them. He says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be what, church? Accursed. As we have said before, so I again now say, if any man is preaching you a gospel contrary to what you received, and he says it again so he's not confused, he is to be accursed. Church family, in the West, we live in a pluralistic, multicultural society, right? And one of the things pluralism leads to is the belief oftentimes that there's really no ultimate standard revealed source of truth. 
Well, the society of Paul's day was not entirely unlike that. It was pluralistic. It, too, was multicultural. And if the Christians had wanted to simply add Christ to the pantheon of Roman gods that they had, they would have been quite comfortable doing so. That would have been consistent with the culture and time of, of their, their, their day, right? But what Christians were trying to say both then, in Paul's day, and what Christians are saying even continue to this day, is that Christ is Lord. And that there's only one way. There's only one ultimate truth. There's only one way to God. The gospel is not one way. It is the only way. That's why, in many regards, we're, we've gone through the book of Colossians and now going through the book of Hebrews. It's a wonderful place for a church plant to start, no? The exclusivity of Christ, the sufficiency of Christ and his work on the cross, and now the superiority of Christ. Let that be emblazoned on our minds and ingrained on our hearts. The gospel is the only way. And so when you read verses 8 and 9, it, you get the strong sense that Paul is not celebrating diversity much like religious leaders do in our time, is he? He's not about diversity of truth. Religious liberals today like to celebrate such diversity. No, Paul, very counter to even our time, he declares clearly and unashamedly that there is only one gospel. And whoever departs from that gospel even if he were to be an angel from heaven, he too would be accursed. That's pretty strong. Notice he doesn't say, hey, listen, if false prophets from, from Jerusalem come and preach another gospel, well, then let them be accursed. He doesn't say, hey, listen, if Peter, James, and John, if they come and preach another gospel, let them be accursed. And while that's true, he, he puts it in the most emphatic way he possibly can, right? He takes it all the way up to heaven. Even if an angel were to come and preach another gospel, let him be accursed. We need to let that sink in this morning. I guarantee you that if an angel showed up in this place today, standing right in front of us, maybe 10, 15 feet tall, one wing touching you, another wing touching you, radiant so bright that we have to cover our eyes, we're going to be doing one of two things. We're either A, going to be falling face down on the ground or we're going to be running for the door, right? Either one. But suppose that angel says, hey, listen, I'm here. I'm here. You almost got the gospel right. It's almost right. It's mostly by faith that you get into a right relationship with God, the God that I'm here to represent. You just need to add one or two things to faith in order to be right. I'm here to fix this pastor, to set him straight. You need to add to the gospel. In the Galatian context, you need to add circumcision. Paul says, even if that angel comes, don't give him one hearing. Show him the door. For those of us who take Galatians 1, 6 through 10 seriously, our response to said angel, and to paraphrase Paul, well, Mr. Angel, you can go back where you came from, right? Because you don't come from God. You are preaching a different gospel. This is why Galatians is the most hard-hitting book, really, of the New Testament. Paul is livid. <laughs> it, it, really, it's hard to put words to it. He uses language over in chapter 5 that's quite mature and graphic, to say the least. We'll get there. And the issue is because Paul, the, for the... Believers in that day, the question is, listen, is Christ's work on the cross sufficient or not? Really? Is his work, atoning work on the cross, is it complete? Is it final? And the Galatians, either wittingly or unwittingly, were drifting towards the view that Christ's work of atonement needed some bolstering. But the message of this book is that salvation is not Christ plus something. The gospel is not Christ plus works. It's not Christ plus anything. It's simply Christ, right? We sing the song, all I have is Christ. Why? Because that's all I need. Even in the event that the Galatians 
began to think that this was the result of an angry Paul, and that verse 8 was just a slip of the pen. Paul's really lost it. He's going to come back down to earth. He repeats himself in verse 9, just to be clear, let them be accursed. Now, for you and I, we're not in a church context. Really, no one's in our midst or in our culture trying to tell us to go out and be circumcised in order to be right with God, right? No one's espousing that. But there's still relevancy for us today, right? God's word is timeless. There's always relevance. And there's relevance even more so than we know. You're familiar with Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith said that who came to him? An angel <laughs> named Marani appeared to him to give him the Book of Mormon. Now, for us as Christians, we're not unnerved by that claim. The Book of Mormon does not fit in with the gospel. It's a religious book. It claims divine authority, but it's not from God. Regardless of where Joseph Smith said it come, came from, Galatians 1, 8 through 9, falls right in line with Mormonism. We give them no hearing. We receive no revelation from any angel that represents a different gospel. Muhammad claims much of the same thing about the Quran, that it was conveyed to him by the angel Gabriel. Even Luther wisely noted the following. He said, if the devil cannot persecute and destroy, I love that, if the devil cannot persecute or destroy, he will undermine by pretending to correct and refine. In God's name begins all mischief. That is so true. What he cannot persecute, what he cannot destroy, he will simply undermine by pretending to correct and refine. That's exactly what was going on, not only in the time of Galatian church in Paul's day, but even today. People, in an attempt to be cute and clever, set out to try to correct and refine. And anytime you smell any efforts to refine anything revealed in Scripture, you run. You give them no hearing. North Lake, we as the people of God have to remain a discerning people. Why? It's because the stakes are incredibly, incredibly high. Paul says these people that will come to you and have come to you, they are to be accursed, literally anathema, which means people who are devoted to destruction. Devoted to destruction. Couldn't get any more serious and the stakes couldn't be any higher than that. We see this in Leviticus 27, 29. Of those who shall not be redeemed but shall be put to death. We see it in Achan, Joshua 7, right? He took the forbidden items from the, the, the defeat of Ai, right? Uh, which led to their, their demise. It was revealed that Achan had taken those forbidden possessions. His entire family, even though he confessed and repented, all of them were stoned and burned. <clears throat> Friends, the bottom line is that to suffer anathema, to be accursed, is to suffer the judgment of God for not loving him, for deserting him. And what awaits those who desert the gospel is nothing short but the full, furious wrath of a holy God. The reformers got this right. Men of God before us got this right. John Calvin could sometimes even be described as being fiercer than Luther. He says, we may say that even if the Pope and all the stinking clergy had the angels on their side, this would be nothing compared to the Lord Jesus Christ. Even if the Pope and the clergy had all the angels on their side, they would be nothing compared to Jesus Christ. Church family, we are to have nothing to do. Be discerning and have nothing to do with false teachers, no matter their credentials, no matter who comes to you. Second John 10, right? It says, don't even give them a hearing. Don't even open your door. Don't let them inside of your house. Why? You, you're in danger of being sucked in with them. We have far too many naive Christians today who look at the prospect of maybe staying in a religious school or, or a church that denies the Bible or distorts the gospel, and they do so naively as somehow being an opportunity for them to be a positive influence, right? And a positive influence for the Lord. Well, church, even a leader like Timothy, well-trained in divine truth, had to be warned to stay away from error, to concentrate on the pure 
teaching of the Bible. You see it in 1 Timothy 4, 2 Timothy chapter 2. Stay away. To subject oneself to false teaching willingly, to give it a hearing is to disobey God. It's to compromise and weaken your testimony. It's to tolerate distortion of the grace of God in Christ. Now, for us, as we look at this exposing message of Paul's adversaries, adversaries to the gospel, we, as the people of God, again have to ask, what do I do with this warning? How do I take it upon myself? How do I and we live what we learn? Well, this has far-reaching implications even for us today. In his autobiography, Billy Graham declared that his policy for cooperation with others was this. He said, if a man accepts the deity of Christ and lives for Christ to the best of his knowledge, I intend to have fellowship with him in Christ. Fast forward and years later in 1994, the Declaration of Evangelicals and Catholics Together was issued. It was signed by Bill Bright, James Packard, Oz Guinness, Mark Knoll, Chuck Colson, and the like. And its claim was, all who accept Christ as Lord and Savior are brothers and sisters in Christ. And so they aligned themselves and linked arms with Roman Catholicism. The issue is, as attractive as that seems, that will not do, will it? Why? It's because we have a different gospel. That question of how do I get into a right relationship with God is answered very differently. If Paul had taken this kind of approach as men before us in church history have, it would have led the Apostle Paul to cooperate with the Galatians. And that's not what he sets out to do, is it? Nowhere in his epistle to the Galatians does Paul ever really mention the person of Christ being the issue. He doesn't even spend time condemning their lifestyle. He'll speak to their lifestyle. But what he is vigorous about is what? Condemning their undermining of justification by faith alone through grace alone. Paul says there's only one gospel. And we find out about that gospel in the word of God. If you want to align with people who hold to some doctrines that you two, that, okay, the litmus test is that question of how do I get into a right relationship with God? We better be on the same page before I sign any declaration of being together. Paul exposes his adversaries. We would be mindful to be the same vigilant, discerning, watchful people as Paul implores them to be in his time. Third clarifying objective, and we have to move forward. Time moveth on. Paul explains his ambition, verse 10. Paul explains his ambition. Verse 10, these are questions. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ, literally a slave of Christ. What's he doing here? What Paul is doing is defending his motives for writing so strongly in the previous verses. <laughs> lest I be confused, lest my motives be twisted, right? Paul is not reveling in being belligerent. He, his first declared aim is to please God, right? That's what I'm about. I, I want to please God, the same God who called you by his grace. He states it very similarly in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses, verse 3 and 4. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be Entrusted, I love that word, entrusted with the gospel, stewards of it. So we speak not as pleasing men, but God who examines our heart. Even Christ said in John 5, 44, if you set out to please the world, you cannot please God. You see, it's widely believed that one of the accusations that the Judaizers were pummeling Paul with and charging against the apostle was that he left out the demand of circumcision. Why? Because he didn't want to offend Gentile sensibilities. 
He didn't want to offend. He didn't want to put off potential converts. And here Paul denies any such motivation. Listen, I'm not declining adding to the gospel because I don't want to offend Gentiles. I'm the apostle to the Gentiles. <laughs> Later in this book, he's even going to fire back at his critics in Galatians 6.12. Look at it for a moment. Flip on over. He's, he just denies this motivation on its face. Galatians 6.12, those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. So here he defends himself. Listen, if I am guilty of what you say I'm guilty of, well, then I'm trying to please man. And nothing could be farther, further from the truth. If I'm trying to please man, that means I'm no longer a bondservant of Christ which is the most important thing in my life, is to serve the one who met me on the road to Damascus, Acts chapter 9, and totally and radically transformed my life and saved me. I am not trying to please man. I defend the gospel, the true gospel, because I want to please God. Now, for you and I, there is a real sense... I need to be very clear about this, but when it comes to the non-essentials, and there are non-essential doctors, not all things are on the same plane. Not all things are primary. There are things that are in our periphery, right? When it comes to non-essentials, Christians are to be accommodating in some regards. That's fine. Romans 14 through 15, right? Paul himself said he should bear patiently with the weaker brother, Okay. Philippians 1.15, he could bear with those with false motives. Why? Because Christ was being proclaimed. But one thing he could never, ever tolerate was the notion of two gospels, non-negotiable. I, 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 I can't sit silent. I can't stand by. I can't accommodate. I can't sit idly by. For you and I, what do we do with this? What's our, really our marching orders? How do we take this upon ourselves? What, how do we live what we learn? I think one thing to point out in our culture, in our time, it, it feels like, and it seems, and it is, to raise something that may be painful or to raise something that's controversial, sometimes today is labeled inherently unchristian, right? And it's like this kind of uh, escape goat, and it's almost like inanswerable. Right? Well, that's unchristian. That's unloving for you to be zealous for the truth, to defend the truth, to stand on the truth, to be clear about the truth. But the book of Galatians admonishes us here in this space, doesn't it? It exhorts us. It was written because Paul was possessed by a higher claim on his life. You even have Peter. Peter was guilty of this his weak behavior in Galatians 2 which Paul had to rebuke to his face shows what can happen when a Christian fears man rather than fearing God and even Peter was susceptible to this John Calvin rightly stated this text exhorts all ministers of the word to shut their eyes to the sinful desires of men if they wish to carry out their duty faithfully let me read it again. This text exhorts all ministers of the word to shut their eyes to the sinful desires of men. It's not about what the world wants in the churches that they're seeking to attend. I shut my eyes to it. All we desire is to carry out the faithful teaching and proclamation of the word and of the gospel. And we leave the rest to God. Why? It's because what people want to hear and what they need to hear is not always the same thing, is it? There's only one gospel, and it's the gospel of grace. It's the gospel that you see in the pages of Scripture. I had a lot of quotes this morning. It's becoming apparent to me. J. Gratian Machen quoted, Paul was intolerant about the content of the message, but tolerant about the personality of the messengers. The modern church is tolerant about the message, but intolerant about the personality of the messengers and about the message by which the message is proclaimed. And we're upside down. <laughs> we're backwards from the way the Apostle Paul lived his life. This is the corrective ministry that's to take place in our lives as we read and continue to study the book of Galatians. 
We see this illustrated in the life of the modern evangelical church, and I use that loosely. We see a, a day where personality can mean more than character, right? Style can mean more than substance. Music can mean more than the message. Friendship can mean more than fellowship with God. You have totally errant things that are being elevated in priority above what should be cherished and clung to and protected and declared. We have to be careful of this. Even one of the besetting sins of the Pharisees was that they what? They loved, the, they loved to please man. What do we do with that? For us as a church, I think it's just a great reminder. Lord, I, we, as we grow and as we become older, we're three years in. This warning is ever relevant for us, and it will be 30 years from now. That, that's, the, that's the reality. Stay true to the gospel. It can be lost, not in the sense that that's an indictment against God, but we lose sight of it. It becomes watered down. It becomes stored. We're not cherishing it. And you know what happens when the people of God cherish and rally around the true gospel revealed in Scripture? People flourish. Spiritual life abounds. Godliness ensues. Galatians 5 and 6, walking by the, the, you know, your lives marked with the fruit of the Spirit, that's possible because you're standing firm, Galatians 5.1, in the, in the true gospel, in the grace of God that's found in Christ. You're standing firm. You begin, to, you begin to shake. Your knees begin to buckle. Spiritual progress is hindered, right? That's the exhortation to us and the warning as well of which we should heed. Amen. Let me pray for us. Um, Father God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this time to be enriched and it's a heavy book. Uh, its language will build over time. I pray that it would only embolden us. I also, too, at the same time, pray that not only that you might make us zealous for the truth, love the truth, long for the purity of the truth, but also at the same time, Lord, I pray that you would keep us humble, that you would fill us and mark us with being a gracious people, uh, not hard and callous and barbed as can so often become the case of people who love the truth. We want to be passionate about what you've revealed in your word, but we also want to be tender with those who need to hear of this message. We want to approach them with grace and patience, as well as passion and fervor. Lord, that's the work that your spirit has to wrought in us, as many churches are guilty of becoming really, really hard and calloused and really just known among the community as an unloving bunch. And we don't want to be that. But we also want to stand firm on the truths of Scripture. We pray that you protect us, shield us. Uh, we want to remain true to this book and shine as a bright light in the community that is North Lake and beyond. For your glory, for your glory, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.